Sanka, fire away. Great, Th thanks so much, uh, Catherine. I want to thank um, Catherine and Leo for organizing this really wonderful uh, conference. Uh, in reading through the various papers uh, for the conference, it's, uh, I'm kind of astonished at uh, the various connections across the, the papers, and um, I think uh, it's going to be, uh, we're going to have a lot of very interesting conversations as a result. So thanks very much to both of you for, for organizing this. Um, in my uh, paper for, uh, for the conference, I analyze three Enlightenment perspectives about how best to counter uh, the often violent, imperial, and oppressive nature of global commerce. Uh, first, I briefly point out, just by way of contrast, uh, Fichte's argument in the closed commercial state uh, that denies any fundamental value to global commerce and that endorses national isolationism and autarky. Uh, and. Uh, I should, uh, I should note that uh, the bulk of the paper, however, focuses on, um, on thinkers who are um, enthusiasts of, of global commerce, uh, but who also view many of the institutions and practices of global commerce as unjust and exploitative, uh, as bound up with empire, conquest, slavery, and the corruptions of the commercial trading companies. Uh, the second and third perspectives fit within this uh, ambivalent strand of theorizations of global commerce. So the second perspective is the idea of global commerce as a purportedly non-imperial, but still uh, hierarchically ordered and European-led civilizing mission uh, that will spread the ideals of liberty and just commerce abroad. Condorcet makes this case in the Yankees, uh, as do some late 18th century British anti-slavery activists. Finally, third, I investigate a cosmopolitan vision of global exchange and communication but in part by means of an equilibrium of countervailing power among nations, including, importantly, non-European resistance against European commercial, military, and political power. And this strand of thought uh, includes, um, in my reading, uh, Reynald, Diderot, and Adam Smith. So for my talk this morning, I'm going to build upon these interpretations in the paper in order to argue that Kant's political philosophy in its considered and published form, that is in the 1790s, that's the period I have in mind especially, uh, though I'll uh, also be supplementing my reading with a couple of historical essays from the mid-1780s as well, places him, broadly speaking, within this third Enlightenment tradition of theorizing global commerce. Although Kant's political thought is often presented as strongly internationalist, indeed, sometimes as naively so, and while some recent interpreters have tried, in effect, to place the entirety of Kant's thought within the second uh, Eurocentric and culturally imperialist perspective, um, I'm going to be arguing that ultimately Kant strives to affirm cosmopolitan and global commercial norms by endorsing the idea of rival communities, and that accordingly he values various forms of what he calls productive resistance between peoples, including resistance by non-European nations against European aggression, both by countries such as China and Japan, and by hunting and pastoral so-called nomadic nations. For these reasons, Kant's nuanced approach toward theorizing global connections has much in common with some of the foremost theorists of global commerce in Enlightenment thought, such as Diderot, Reynal, and Adam Smith. I'm going to talk briefly first about the internationalist and cosmopolitan features of Kant's thought in order to underscore his arguments about what is valuable about global exchange. Then, second, I'll discuss the injustices that have arisen in Kant's view as a result of increasing global connections. Third, I'll note Kant's rather Rousseauian concerns about civilization, and thus I'll note along these lines why Kant did not favor commerce among individuals and peoples, 
because of any commitment to increasing or spreading civilization as such, along the lines of what Condorcet had recommended, for, uh, for example. And finally, fourth, I'll analyze Kant's arguments in favor of rival communities and of a certain kind of antagonism among peoples, as well as, as Kant puts it, a productive resistance between nations. So first, given this uh, particular audience, uh, I don't think that it's necessary to rehearse the full range of the philosophical foundations of Kant's cosmopolitanism, uh, but I want to focus to begin with on the importance of commerce as exchange and interaction. This is bound up for Kant, as it so often was in Enlightenment writings, with the exchange of goods. Uh, communication and trade tend to run together and to inform one another very closely in this period. The importance of communication as such is emphasized by Kant in a number of writings. He writes in Theory and Practice, for example, that, quote, it is a natural calling of humanity to communicate with one another, especially in what concerns people generally. Now, among the things that tend to concern people generally is their survival and sustenance, which can be greatly aided by trade. In Perpetual Peace, Kant asserts that the initial articles of trade, such as salt, probably first brought together peoples in peaceable and communicative relations with one another. As Kant writes, the first articles everywhere in demand of a trade among various peoples first brought them into a peaceable relation to each other and so into understanding and community with one another, even with the most distant. In the Metaphysics of Morals, Kant contends, again in common with so many earlier defenders of commercial interaction, that while the seas and oceans, quote, might seem to remove nations from any community with one another, they are in fact the arrangements of nature most favoring their commerce by means of navigation. Kant also famously contends, as Montesquieu and others had, that the spirit of commerce, as he puts it, helps to create a mutual self-interest among nations not to go to war and to resolve international conflicts as often as possible by, media by mediation, not due to moral motivations, but because of what Kant calls the power of money. This itself can help to unite nations over time. Another example, I think, of the power of money in Kant's thought concerns the debt financing of wars, which Kant views as destructive and deeply problematic in itself. Nevertheless, the ever-growing burden of debt, as he puts it, might over time have some positive consequences. Kant contends that many states would likely offer themselves as judges or mediators for international disputes to try to put an end to the ceaseless wars that end up producing a whole series of financial shocks and debt crises, which can now never be contained in one or a few nations, given the very close commercial connections of so many nations throughout the world. These structural revolutions, as Kant calls them, might be the first early steps toward the ultimate formation of a voluntary Congress of States. So here, too, we see the benefits of commercial connections and the power of money, this time in a negative form. Uh, in this case, not to protect or to increase profits, but to avoid recurring global debt crises and financial collapses. All of these actual or potential benefits of global commerce, however, need to be balanced against the injustices and violence that Kant also tells us are brought about in part by global commerce, by increasing connections among peoples. In Kant's analysis, the agents of commerce can also be the agents of slavery, of conquest, of the expropriation of goods and lands, and of mass exploitation. This is the other side, you might say, of the power of money, and so overall Kant offers as complex and nuanced of an understanding of modern global commerce as what we find in Adam Smith and Raynaud Diderot. There's a similar ambivalence in Kant toward the rise of global commerce. The growing interconnections among peoples might provide in the future 
the incentives for trying to overcome war, yet they also provide the occasions for the most extraordinary forms of injustice and violence. Indeed, the primary violators of cosmopolitan right and Kant's view are, as he puts it, quote, the civilized, especially the commercial states in our part of the world. It's the commercial character of many European countries in Kant's view that provides them the opportunity to engage the most gruesome forms of injustice. In describing their activities abroad, uh, Kant argues in a, a memorable passage that uh, the injustice they show in visiting foreign lands and peoples, uh, which with them is tantamount to conquering them, goes to horrifying lengths. When America, the Negro countries, the Spice Islands, the Cape, and so forth were discovered, they were to them, to European commercial states, countries belonging to no one, since they counted the inhabitants as nothing. In the East Indies, Hindustan, they brought in foreign soldiers under the pretext of merely, propping, uh, of merely proposing to set up trading posts, but with them came oppression of the inhabitants, incitement of the various Indian states to widespread wars, famine, rebellions, treachery, and the whole litany of troubles that oppress the human race. The particular litany of troubles that Kant describes is precisely what Adam Smith investigates at such length in The Wealth of Nations, vis-a-vis -vis in particular the activities of the European commercial trading companies. And indeed, just as Smith had argued, Kant notes that considered as business enterprises, the ultimate irony is that such companies aren't even profitable. They are all, Kant states, on the verge of collapse, in his words. Although, as Adam Smith had argued, they're never allowed to completely fail. Rather, they're predictably and routinely bailed out by their states, which have increasingly come under these companies' influence and control. Kant's own conception of the norms of cosmopolitan right are meant to provide both a normative critique and to offer moral guidance to those who struggle against the grave injustices that global commerce engenders. How, then, would the politically productive aspects of commercial connections across borders be maintained without entailing the destructive and unjust practices that global commerce makes possible? To begin with, it's important to note that, in Kant's view, increasing civilization by making nomadic societies turn into sedentary, uh, civilized ones, and by making civilized societies attain a higher degree of civilization, these civilizational pursuits will fail to create the conditions that will approximate the goal of perpetual peace. What Condorcet would propose, for example, to, to achieve conditions of global justice in the future by encouraging European colonists of commerce to peacefully spread the ideals of European liberty abroad conflicts with Kant's assessment of the value of civilization itself. To be sure, in Kant's view, while the initial formation in the past of some civilized societies produced great misery and injustice, it also made possible the development of the refined arts and sciences. Yet, and here, very much under the influence of Rousseau, that in and of itself fails to constitute meaningful progress for humanity as a whole. And it can't be used to justify civilizing missions in Kant's own time or in the future. In its current condition, humans who live in civilized societies endure, in Kant's words, the most severe ills deceptively disguised as external prosperity. Kant goes on to argue that, quote, we are cultivated to a great extent by the arts and sciences and we are civilized to a troublesome degree in all forms of social courteousness and decency. But to consider ourselves to be already fully moralized is quite premature, for the idea of morality is part of culture. But the use of this idea, which leads only to that which resembles morality in the love of honor and outward decency, comprises only mere civilization. Kant argues that what is truly needed for political progress is moral cultivation, 
And this requires, as he puts it, a long internal process in every commonwealth. In the meantime, he warns that all that is good, but that is not based on morally good convictions, is nothing but pure outward show and glittering misery. Strikingly, Kant's grim assessment of European societies leads him to conclude uh, that, as he puts it, uh, culture, according to true principles of education, with regard both to the human being and citizen, perhaps has not even really begun, much less been completed. Kant's ultimate assessment, then, is that the state of civilization consists of manifold human misery and oppressive, unjustifiable inequality. Furthermore, as Kant's arguments about cosmopolitan right make clear, the primary agents of global injustice are commercial European states, not non-civilized nomadic peoples. Uh, that is, hunting and gathering or pastoral peoples, such as the Cree in the plains of North America or the Bedouins in the Near East. Uh, forcibly turning such nomadic societies into sedentary ones is unjust in part, according to Kant, because nomadic peoples have as much legitimate claim to the land they use for their own way of life as the claim that sedentary societies have over their own land. And this in itself is, uh, is a notable um, uh, claim, um, uh, I should note, in the context of 18th century debates. are very different, for, uh, for instance, um, uh, than even if we focus just within the 18th century, uh, very different from a thinker like Vattel, uh, for instance, when it comes to a, um, uh, the relationship um, that, you, that Europeans should have to, uh, to sedentary peoples and whether sedentary peoples have any uh, legitimate claim over their, um, over their land. But in addition, I think, importantly, um, while it might be claimed that stealing a nation's land and murdering many of its people in the process is, quote, to the world's advantage because these rough peoples will become civilized, an argument that Kant considers, Kant, um, and I think it's important to note this, Kant characterizes this argument as specious. Uh, Scheinbar, um, uh, you know, the, the root shine is you know, fictitious, pseudo. Um, it, it's not, therefore, to the world's advantage that all peoples be sedentary and practice agriculture. Uh, that is to say, it's not just the violent means to that end. Kant has doubts about the end itself, uh, I think. Um, referring to the collective lives led by hunting or pastoral peoples, and the large open spaces of land that are required for such lives to be led, Kant argues that as long as they keep within their boundaries, the way they want to live on their land is up to their own discretion. Res mere facultatis. Unquote. The res mere facultatis is a legal term used both in the law of nations and more broadly in other jurisprudential texts at the time. Uh, as Vattel defined the term, it refers to act solely of the free will without any constraint which one may or may not do at one's pleasure. And Kant's use of it here is significant. Uh, this is precisely the concept that he uses in his political philosophy when he defends individual autonomy against the power of the state, such that individuals should be free to lead their own way of life, to practice their own religion, to live in accordance with their own conception of happiness. A violation of that, we should recall, is what Kant refers to as the greatest conceivable despotism that a state can commit. Kant uses, then, this legal and normative category also with regard to nations and to their collective ways of life, most importantly to the crucial decision as to how a people will gain its sustenance from the land, hunting and gathering, or fishing, or pastoralism, or settled agriculture, to interfere with that decision, which shapes the life of a whole people, to conquer and to settle colonies or trading fortifications on that basis, that is, to build empires to spread civilization by means of imperial global commerce, is therefore, by the logic of Kant's arguments, the greatest conceivable despotism committed by states on the global scale. 
How then, in constant view, should the salutary effects of global exchange and interaction be preserved in light of the gross injustice and oppression that global commerce makes possible? As I've noted, Kant has uh, no sympathy for civilizationist missions as the answer, uh, and he offers instead uh, a defense of the norms of hospitality and just commerce, which he uses negatively to condemn colonialism and exploitative trading practices, and, as I will now discuss, positively to describe an equilibrium between the separateness and distinct identity of nations, as well as attempted and sometimes actual communicative and commercial connections among them. Global justice consists of that balance rather than an open and always unimpeded free exchange and trade among nations. Kant justifies only possible attempted commerce with other peoples. And his description of global society makes clear that the bonds of amity among all peoples is not the goal of a properly construed conception of global justice. Such a global society will be, quote, a peaceful, even if not a friendly, thoroughgoing community of all nations on the earth. It's crucial to appreciate, then, that a vision of rival communities, and even of a certain antagonism among nations, is part of Kant's ideal conception of global relations. Some reflection upon Kant's understanding of unsocial sociability, as well as an examination of his arguments against a world state, illuminate his dual commitment to fostering connections among peoples, and yet simultaneously to encouraging a productive resistance between peoples. Kant introduces the idea of unsocial sociability and the idea for universal history, both to theorize individual human behavior and the behavior of states. And he makes a defense of the positive effects of the unsociable quality of human nature in particular, not simply because in the past it helped to impel some humans toward the formation of civil unions, and in the future he hopes toward an international federation. In other words, it's not simply temporarily helpful towards some end, at which point unsociability is no longer productive. Rather, even within such ideal institutions as a well-ordered civil union and an international federation, the antagonism that comes from this unsociability is politically valuable. Recall that Kant defines such antagonism in the following way. This is Kant. I take antagonism to mean the unsocial sociability of human beings. That is, their tendency to enter into society, a tendency, a tendency connected, however, with a constant resistance that continually threatens to break up the society. This unsocial sociability is obviously a part of human nature. Human beings have an inclination to associate with one another because in such a condition they feel themselves to be more human. But they also have a strong tendency to isolate themselves because they encounter in themselves the unsociable trait that predisposes them to want to direct everything only to their own ends and hence to expect to encounter resistance everywhere, just as they know that they themselves tend to resist others. This resistance uh, and tendency to isolate oneself, the desire to direct, one might even say to dominate others, and correspondingly the expectation to meet resistance elsewhere, and hence to desire one's own protected space, all constitute essential aspects of Kant's ideal account of global commerce and global justice. Hence, in the metaphysics of morals, Kant argues in favor of hunting or pastoring peoples actively, and by implication violently if need be, resisting others' attempts to change or to civilize their societies. And Kant himself in this context uses the language of resistance. Similarly, Kant justifies the wisdom of the reaction of China and Japan to European incursions, and he applauds their attempts to severely limit their people's interactions with European merchants, missionaries, and others. 
These are precisely examples of what Kant describes as the productive resistance that global justice requires. At the global level, our goal, Kant writes, should be, quote, to discover a law of equilibrium with regard to the in-itself productive resistance between many states, unquote. As he goes on to note, in his words, a cosmopolitan condition of public security is thus introduced, which is not completely free of danger, but also not without a principle of the equality of their mutual actions and reactions, so that they, so that they do not destroy one another. This delicate balancing act between our communicative and, and commercial bonds on the one hand, and the danger and productive resistance between peoples on the other, this equality of actions and reactions, what Kant at one point describes as ideally a peace that is produced and secured by means of the equilibrium of peoples in liveliest competition. This ideal is also at work, I think, in Kant's analysis of how best to avoid the formation of a world state. In the 1790s, Kant insisted that a sovereign world state would be despotic, in part because individual states wouldn't voluntarily give up their own sovereign power, and so a world state could only be created by conquest and empire, which itself would be unjust. In addition, like so many Republican thinkers of the 18th century, Kant assumed that the governance of very large territories, let alone the whole earth, necessitates despotic rule. And over time, given the impossibility of effectively governing such large territories, this could even lead to the anarchic dissolution of Republican self-rule, or indeed of any state government. This was a pressing political matter in Kant's view because one of the primary challenges that humans face is that political elites crave world domination, or universal monarchy, to use the Enlightenment term. And these political elites were willing to use cunning and force toward that end. Happily, Kant writes, differences in language and in religion create a kind of friction among peoples. There's less intermingling than there might have been um, uh, otherwise as a result, and a, sense, a certain sense of separation among peoples. And recall here uh, the desire for isolation that's part of the unsociable antagonism that Kant values. This in itself, to be sure, is potentially problematic. Kant himself notes that there could be a propensity to mutual hatred as a result. And such animosity could serve as pretext for war. It's important to keep in mind then what Kant writes in section 57 of the Metaphysics of Morals, that the very idea of a right of nations, quote, involves only the concept of an antagonism in accordance with principles of outer freedom, by which each can preserve what belongs to it, but not a way of acquiring by which one state's increase of power could threaten others." Unquote. This is an antagonism, then, that's rooted in a commitment to self-preservation rather than to conquest, and it thus helps to ensure that the separateness of peoples and the plurality of communities uh, it helps to ensure both the separateness of peoples and the plurality of, of communities that global justice requires. Ideally, Kant argues that the friction and resistance between peoples ought to be balanced against attempted commercial and communicative connections among peoples, which in part are likely to ensue for profit-oriented goals, if not for mutual understanding or out of friendship. Eventually, Kant hopes this would be supplemented further still by the peaceful mediation of disputes that voluntary Congress of States would make possible. It's important to appreciate that this global institution itself, according to Kant, depends for its success upon the cross-cutting forces of, on the one hand, attempted commercial connections linking peoples together, and on the other, a rivalrous unsociability between peoples. Kant's political philosophy should be understood as part of an ambivalent strand of enlightenment thought about global society. 
world citizenship and transcontinental commerce, one that justifies and encourages global connections, but that also counsels resistance against potential and actual commercial exploitation. Indeed, although the traditional defense of global commerce emphasized the notion of universal fellowship and transnational amity, Raynal, Diderot, Adam Smith, and Immanuel Kant all believed in their distinct but overlapping ways that a global community without empire, oppression, and injustice could only be approximated and maintained over time, in part as a result of antagonism, resistance, and countervailing power. Thanks very much, Sandra.